everybody, this is The Legendary Tales. I'm your host, Isadora Martin-Dye, and I have in the room with me, Adam Bloor. Hi, folks. So it is really early in the morning, and we are caffeinated, but not showered, um, as we are trying to get this out on time. But Adam is in the middle of his midterms, mm-hmm. and I am in the middle of renovating a house that is fighting back. Um so we are here early in the morning, and I am very, very loud, so I'm going to turn that down a bit. Okay. So we're here early in the morning, and hopefully now I'm not blasting through your eardrums. And we are discussing, I guess, natural disasters? No, sort of just vague environmental stuff. Vague environmental stuff? Well, yours was like a dam bursting, wasn't it? Yeah. So not really an environment. I mean, sort of an environmental thing, but more that, like... Yours is more of like an infrastructure thing because dams are just like the worst. We should never use dams for anything. Well, I'm they certainly fl- not going to be. Uh, I'm fl- certainly not going to be arguing for them in this episode. They flooded so many Appalachian Valley like communities um, because the government just doesn't care about those places in America. Um, so maybe that'll be a topic that I talk about as well. We'll, we'll bring it back to another dam bursting and talk about how it affects communities and stuff. They're, um, yeah. they're terrible. This isn't a tirade against dams. That's not what this episode is. Okay, so what it was... Okay, so you're actually going to go first. Yeah. But real quick, the reason I chose dam breaking is because another podcast I listened to, um, My Favorite Murder, uh, which did a dam bursting episode. Oh, cool. Uh, Why? Just as a just as a break from... The, was it related to the murder stuff? Yeah, I mean, you could kind of argue that people are to blame, blame for dams, so... Yeah. Not like in the same way that... I mean, no. yeah, I mean, because sometimes, in, like, social engineers and, like, people just ignore the fact that yeah, and that was these things what are, happened. like, become yeah. damaged. And... So it was it was kind of more in that respect. I think mm. every once in a while they get a little bored of just doing straight-up yeah, rippers. Yeah. yeah, so that was one of theirs. But it was one of the more, it was definitely one of the episodes that's most stuck with me. I don't think we have to shout them out, right? Because they're, like, the most popular podcast yeah, we, I don't Spotify. Think... People know who they are, Yeah, right? people know who they are, but, okay. like... Um, and I'm a full-on murderino, yeah. but uh, they uh, it was one of my favorite episodes, and it really stuck with me. So when you said you were doing whatever it is you're Something doing. Something to do with the, uh, the nature. I was like, eh, this is my chance. I'll do a damn burst thing. <laughs> I can fit in the cool thing now that all the podcasters are talking about. Oh, uh, they did this a while ago, and it's a different damn bursting than the one that they talked about. Okay, all right. I okay. think that makes it fine. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm talking about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Um, rubbish patch if you're English. Um, this is a kind of interesting thing. Um, it's been on my mind recently, like recycling and stuff has been more in the forefront of my brain because I know a lot of reports have come out saying that like be- since quarantine our like carbon emissions are way down because people aren't driving as many yeah. places. But um, our like single use plastic usage as a, as like a global community is like through the roof. But you know what? That makes sense to me because we, ironically, about two years ago, went on a massive environmental kick at the manor and we yeah. tried to make sure that we were not using single-use plastics, mm-hmm. that we were only using biodegradable, recyclable stuff. For those that don't know, I own a wedding venue called Rixie Manor. promise you this is not the podcast of shout-outs, <laughs> but it's a great wedding venue in Virginia and I love it. Um, but we went on this massive kick mm. to try and green up. We're always trying to be what couples want. Um, But this, the corona pandemic means that 90% of our Mm. green initiatives just got thrown out the window because they are not viable while you're trying to control a pandemic. Um, No, they are not. Um, But, and we're we're also seeing a lot of, uh, like PPE is is largely... uh, Disposable and plastic. uh, Disposable and plastic based. Um, The issue isn't that like the material is that we're using more of it, although that is a concern because we are using more of it and it's just ending up in landfills or in the ocean, as we will soon find out. Um, that is the issue. That's exactly the issue. Yeah. That, that, is exa- that is exactly okay, the issue. Okay, good. I'm glad we're with you. I'm um, glad you I got most of my uh, information from a, a National Geographic article from this... Okay. That's named the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. National Geographic does amazing work. Um, but not imaginative titles? I mean, why would you need anything more imaginative imaginative than that, really? Okay. Um, it cuts straight to the point, really. Um, I think they had a byline. I just didn't include <laughs> it. 
So it's more, so I thought it was an island. I, I think it's portrayed when, when people think about this thing that does actually exist. We sort of think that it's like a floating garbage island. That's kind of what I thought. Yeah, it's a little bit different than that. Okay. It's a bit of a misnomer to call it an island. Um, so it's actually two different patches of rubbish that are floating around the ocean. So it's two islands. Sort of, yeah. And they've become trapped in the North Pacific Subtropical Gyre, which is a large system of circulating ocean currents. So in the Pacific Ocean, and as well as in the Atlantic, but more specifically in the Pacific because of how the, the air moves yeah. over that ocean, I think, there are like four or five big, like, rotating ocean currents. Okay. Um, and in the middle of one of these things, it's very calm because the water doesn't move because yeah. of the water yeah. moving around it. And so all of the rubbish... Gets trapped. It's like trapped in the current and then sucked into the middle. And yeah. it just sort of like floats there. Um, these are just, it's plastic, bits of debris, um, and basically like stuff is, that isn't biodegradable. Because and it's, it's ended up in the water from all over the world? Yes, it's a global, it's a, I have some global tonnage okay. numbers, which are just absolutely ridiculous. Um, and like, yeah, it's mostly, it's 80% of it comes from land sources. Instead of like coming off of ships, so oh, okay. so like I honestly assumed almost one hundred percent of it came from land sources. Yeah, twenty um, percent seemed high for. for it's ship weird stuff. to me. Ships, you're in the ocean. <laughs> Stop dumping your stuff out there. And that's the thing is like I'm not sure. It's not like how it gets there from land sources. So land sources, like the biggest thing that's in our oceans is stuff that's made up of plastic pellets, like water bottles. Yeah. Takeout container, like just like in styrofoam cups and stuff like yeah. that. Um, and that accounts for like eighty percent of the eighty of the one hundred percent of the plastic stuff in our ocean. It's something the the number I have here from the International Union for the Conservation of Nature uh, cites it as two hundred and fifty seven thousand kilotons a year. I can't even. It's a big process What that it's number a real means. big number. Okay. The second biggest thing is synthetic textiles. This was an interesting one to okay. me. That's the second bit because every time you wash a fleece jumper or or whatever that the the plastic in the fleece washes out and then into the waterways depending on where you have water wow i'm feeling really good about our day today because (laughs) our day today i've actually spent a little extra money and by little i mean a lot a lot extra money and we are putting in insulation in the old house today but i am using it's what i was about to say i'm using british wool so I'm actually doing something good for the environment. Yeah. So I'm feeling good about. Yeah. yeah. Keep going. I'm having a. <laughs> I'm using my reusable coffee cup this morning. Yeah. I'm um, good. I can yeah. take this. I can take this without too much self. <laughs> um, yeah, without too much self hate. Um, like I said, it's a bit of a misnomer. It's de- it's been described as more of a cloudy soup, uh, which is worse than an island because I think that like when you think of a uh, garbage island, it's kind of like fanciful, but it's not. It's a horrible environmental. <laughs> disaster that we've caused as humans um and it can't it's not really an island because 70 percent of the stuff sinks to the ocean floor so like you're not even seeing oh really a majority of the stuff on on the surface oh you're just ruining all my fantasy island stuff <laughs> all the, your all your your fantasy, planned vacation to yeah. <laughs> island <laughs> although i do think that might become like a like a, like a joke you should go to Garbage Island. I don't know. I think it's really funny to like tell someone to go to Garbage okay. Island for a vacation. Check out the new merch coming soon. Yeah, that'd be funny. <laughs> uh, because we should we should raise awareness for this because no one wants to take responsibility for it. Um, it was originally discovered by a boat captain named Charles Moore. Um, and I, I like this guy a little bit, but he did find it in the middle of a yachting race. So I'm also sort of like, eh, you're, you were in a yachting race and you drove through a plastic soup puddle. And like, yeah, you've now, now okay, raised come on. raised awareness to this, but you were r- racing a yacht. I can't reiterate enough that like in terms of fuel, like econ- ec- economic uses of fuel, racing a yacht has to be the least economic way but to do it. what kind of yacht? A big one. These are very rich Sailboats. Oh, yeah. Yachts are also... It could be wind, primarily wind-powered or diesel-powered. We that's, talked about this aggressively the true. other day. That's true. That's um, true. Yeah, that was really a stupid conversation. Um... 
Yeah, that's true. You can do yachts. I thought your thing. I thought your aversion to the yachting race was that people automatically assume people in yachting races are douchebags. Well, absolutely, they are not environmental. <laughs> no, that's the thing. Is like it's cool that he found it and he like was like, oh, this is an issue. Um, but Adam and I had different upbringings. I knew lots of people who were in yachting races. And I can say that 90% of them are douchebags. <laughs> douchebags. There are one or two, and this is obviously one of the exceptions. Yes. Uh, and so when he found this soup, yep. uh, he had a, a nice quote in the National Geographic article. Um, he said, so on the way back to our home port in Long Beach, California. Oh, we're... God, he's from Long Beach? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Forget what I said about the 1%, <laughs> I mean, not douchebags. We decided to take a shortcut through the gyre, uh, which few seafarers ever cross, and fishermen shun it because its waters lack the nutrients to support an abundant catch. That's because we filled it with, with plastic. plastic. yeah. <laughs> Sailors dodge it because it, locks the, it lacks the wind to propel their sailboats. Uh. Yet, as I gazed from the deck of the surface of what ought to have been a pristine ocean, I was confronted, as far as the eye could see, with the sight of plastic. It seemed unbelievable, and I never found a clear spot in the week that it took for us to cross the subtropical high. No matter what time of day I looked, plastic debris was floating everywhere. Bottles, bottle caps, wrappers, and fragments of styrofoam. When, what year was that? 2000 and, he discovered it originally in 1997. I think they quoted him in like 2013. Wow, so it was only in 1997 that anyone had any idea? I'm sure there was an idea, but he... He was the one he, that like, talked, sailed across it. Because most of the footage before then would have come from, I'm assuming, government satellites. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. And they probably didn't want to go down that route. No. Uh, so there is a reason. We talked about it briefly. Plastic is super durable. Uh, it's malleable for how durable it is, and it's really cheap to produce. So that's the reason that people use so much of it. Mm -hmm. um, and as Dora said, uh, the nutrient thing that Charles was talking about, uh, yeah, it's because there's a bunch of plastic in the ocean. <laughs> um, obviously, we've seen the footage of the turtles. Uh, we don't like that very much. Uh, but other animals at risk are albatross because they feed their babies the plastic pellets. And Think about them from... Uh, little Mermaid, if you want to. Oh, uh, yeah. If you want if to you put really... a cute face on what an albatross <laughs> looks think... like and feel something. Is there an albatross in Little Mermaid? I know there's like seagulls and stuff, but are there? Because albatross operate like strictly differently than a seagull I think does. Albatross and a Little Mermaid. Oh, they're also in Finding Nemo, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. No, no, that's a. That's a pelican. Pelican. So that's Australia. Oh, God. There is a Disney show. Is it. Rescuers, Adventures Down Under. Oh, that is one a, of them. Deep, deep oh, Disney. Cut. Deep Disney. <laughs> deep Disney type. Okay, somewhere there's an albatross. Uh, and seals as well. Seals are are and like other sea mammals. Oh, you will compete for a cute seal. Yeah, seals are just cute. They're, they're like they're they're sea dogs. Yeah. Um, they're at risk from the boating stuff because. So what's interesting about the waste, the kind of waste that comes from the land as opposed to. The, the kind that comes from boats. Yeah. Is that the stuff from land is obviously, like I said, like plastic pellets and your synthetic textiles. Uh -huh. I'm absolutely listening to you. I'm not confirming the fact that in Disney movie Rescuers Down Under, it is Rescuers Down Under. they rode an albatross. Okay. That's the one with the mice? No. Uh, yeah, it is the one with the mice. Um, but. And they call it ghost fishing. Ooh. We're going to bring it back to a dark, deep, dark place. Um, seals and other sea mammals get caught in abandoned fishing nets and then they drown. So. It happens often enough that we have a term for it, which is a real shame. Ghost fishing. Yeah. That's that's not a great descriptive term for it, is no, it? No, it's not. Well, I mean... It, I mean Mammal murder. <laughs> Animal killer. Animal killing. Um, it's... And outside of, like, the... Just, like, act... Not active, but the passive killing of animals, uh, the food chain is also very yeah. clearly disrupted because plankton and algae can't get enough sun... <clears throat> Can't get enough sun. <laughs> Adam hit puberty. Oh, boy. You heard it here now. Um, and when you start at the top with plankton and algae, which feed like 90% of the prey in the ocean, and then the other stuff can't get the food, so you disrupt it from the top down, and then the ocean is just an impossible, barren wasteland that we yeah. can no longer uh, utilize for its resources. Um, the inter Another interesting thing is that there is very little like legislation, obviously, to sort of stop this from happening because it's in the ocean and just like pirates, like it's it's outside of the jurisdiction of any country. I know. I did tell Ben the other day that if I was a, if he ever offered to take me on a cruise, mm -hmm. I would assume he was going to murder me. Yes. And if I offered to take him on a cruise, assume I was planning on murdering him. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough, I think. Um, but humans are biodegradable. So like 
go for it. Like okay. just don't just don't dump your plastic bottles in there. Make sure I make sure we take all our non-recyclable, yeah. non-biodegradable clothing off before we chuck yeah, the person don't, overboard. Yeah, don't uh, wrap them in duct tape or plastic. Yeah. Just get them in there. Yeah, just over the edge. And no fleeces when he goes. Yeah, no fleece. Mm, we're gonna have to give those to the goodwill. Okay. Um, it's different. It's also difficult to clean microplastic because they tend to be the same size as sea animals. So any nets that could catch plastic would catch the animals, artificially decreasing population sizes and stuff. Uh, the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration says it would take 67 ships okay. one year to mm -hmm. clean 1% of the North Pacific Ocean. Okay, I'm sure you're going to get to this, but didn't someone recently make a machine to do it? Um, I don't know. I have a vision... Did your brain create it, or was this a, a or did an actual person do this? I don't know because I thought I my brain had created a fireball the other night. What did? And it actually did, and not only did it actually do it, it was on Sky News this morning that 120 people saw a fireball. They all went insane. Collective insanity. Um, and I thought that I was kind of going a bit crazy because mm. I thought I'd seen something in the sky, and I for the first time ever thought, oh my god, this is how quickly you can start to believe in UFOs. <laughs> and then I realized it was a fireball, and I wasn't. As impressed. As impressed. Well, no, I was very, or, or I was excited. much more impressed because what I can brag about seeing You're a fireball. More impressed with the fireball than if you had actually seen a UFO. Yeah, because I can brag about seeing a fireball and no one thinks I'm crazy. Whereas... Actually, I think you might actually have seen a UFO, but you don't want to tell any of us about it. Okay, in that case, 120 people <laughs> around me saw a UFO. Really? I'm just adding my name to that list, so I'm 121 people can <laughs> confirm they saw a UFO. I saw it before. Slash fireball. Before it was cool. Yeah, I saw it first. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, but someone did build a boat out of plastic bottles, but we'll get to that in a second. Okay. So Charles Moore, this this yachting adventurer, who might actually be a real cool guy, uh, founded the Algalita Marine Research Team in 2014, after like seven years after seeing this thing, or mm -hmm. no, 17 years. He's a very he's very into okay. keeping his. Yeah, so they built a boat. Oh, we have not gotten there yet. Uh, oh, okay. So Charles Moore founded the Agalita Marine Research Center in 1997, and in 2014 he took a drone out, his team took a drone out, and they discovered a thousand times more plastic than they originally expected was in the ocean. Well, that's not what you want to hear. <laughs> including uh, more permanent features that were over 15 meters long, which is 50 feet if you're using Imperial <laughs> units. I'm sorry. 50 they feet. They described them as permanent features, like a fireplace? Yeah, or a... yeah or like a mantle. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the uh, more original features of the trash pile. This is the original garbage heap in the North Pacific Ocean. Uh, see how it's holding vintage Coca-Cola <laughs> cans. And... That's, I'm interested to see what, what's floating around in this thing. I see Adam's going to have a new career. I am, I got very into this, specifically because of this, uh, this, this man. I don't know much about the Rothschilds. Um, but they might get an episode because they've been such a prominent family in the world for so yeah. long uh, that they have like 200 years worth of conspiracies around. How are the Rothschilds involved in this? So I'm David, sorry. So David Rothschild, <laughs> okay. um, who is the founder of Adventure Ecology, built, okay. built a boat, built a catamaran out of 12,500 two-liter plastic bottles and sailed it from San Francisco to Sydney. 8,000 nautical miles on a plastic to prove boat to prove that the, the the plastic was plastic is obviously super durable. Um, this was more in in combination of raising awareness with how much plastic actually goes into the ocean, because this was stuff I believe they dredged from the ocean, like bottles they dredged from the ocean. I would hope they didn't create the bottles. No, for that'd be it. Really that seems. Silly. I don't. Well, they wouldn't have created. It. I mean, uh, hopefully they would have pulled them out of bins <laughs> or something. But no, these were this, these were specifically dredged from the ocean, and it, it would. It's also a bit of an experiment to show how durable yeah. plastic can be reused. It's not like even like single use bottles can be reused again. So um, they named the boat the pl Plastiki. Plastiki. Okay. And if you go to the Plastiki.com, you can watch. They have a really well laid out um, sort of start to end visual adventure of the ship that they that they went on. So it's I, the boat looks amazing. It looks yeah. super, super cool. And it's really like. It's an important message cool. um, with a really ridiculous premise. Um, right, so now we're going to do some numbers. Oh, gosh. Uh, it's early for numbers. Uh, the, so the International Union for the Conservation of Nature says that 300 million tons of plastic are produced every year. 
uh, and 800 million of that end up in the ocean. Uh, they the this the IUCN yeah okay. the IUCN thinks that there needs to be like a legally binding international agreement, uh, but that's very difficult to do because countries don't do things like that. This is like on the bottom of the list when it comes to international conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I think generally we're more concerned with who we're going to blow up this week uh, than with than with this sort of thing. Although you've got to hope that maybe that's... Well, you got to hope, but... Yeah. I mean, our military budget in the States is like $170 trillion. Some of that money could surely go to an ocean trawler. Or mental health, as we discussed when we did the Japanese... Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, their deaths in that country were down this year, even through the corona pandemic. Oh, uh, good for Japan. Yeah, which was a... I can't remember where I heard we that. We have to do this. Good. We have to do a follow-up episode yeah, where we each kind of see what we... Learn. That would be good oh. because um, Avi Loeb, the guy who talked about the Oumuamua, um, the, the 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 meteor that he thought yeah. was a, a a UFO, recently went on the Joe Rogan podcast and was talking about it. So oh, it'd, nice. be ni it'd be nice to hear him talk about it in human words because reading his when you read an astrophysicist yeah. language, you just like your brain melts out of your ears. Um, yeah, maybe we'll do a little. We really should do a follow up. Yeah, where we that'd, that'd be, that's an easy way for us to get an episode too. Really? I don't think that's easy because we have to go through all our past episodes and see. Maybe we do that for our 50th. Guys, oh, we're approaching our 50th yeah. episode. That's insane. Um, yes, maybe we'll do a recap for the 50th then. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, all right. Off point. Sorry. Give yeah, me more numbers. Yeah. Uh, more numbers. Yeah. Plastic pellets. Uh, this is all world consumption, so I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. Uh, but it's mostly America, <laughs> I think. And, and and like part bits of Asia. Um yeah, so plastic pellets, uh, it's something, it's, they put K-tons, when I, but when I Google searched a kiloton, that's only a measurement used when you measure the strength of a TNT explosion, so I don't know if it's a different kind of... Lots of tons. Well, big tons, yeah. 200, tons times by thousands 257,000 thousands of tons of plastic yeah. pellets and 402,534 thousands of thousands of tons of synthetic textiles, so we use a lot of, like... Like like yeah. synthetic fleece in our clothing. We do, uh, which is weird because sheep exist, and farmers really need us to buy wool. Yeah, we should start a darning company. Sure, that was what I took away from it. In fact, what I took away from it was, guys, go buy something wool. Yeah, wool is great. Go buy something locally farmed and wool. If you have access to that, obviously, there's a huge amount of privilege that comes with being able to buy a locally sourced wool garment people are listening to a podcast on a wednesday on spotify or itunes yeah, go buy a wool jumper. you can go buy a wool jumper <laughs> come buy on a wool jumper and stop buying well and here's the thing too is like just because this is like the message is like don't also walk. just because we sell synthetic stuff on our merchandise oh, we store. stop doing that <laughs> yeah but try finding all, all right guys buy a wool jumper and then come to us with find who does a print on, on demand print merchandise <laughs> with recyclable and or sustainable cotton. materials if you use 100 yeah. cotton it's, it's absolutely sustainable uh, the issue is that like don't throw away your synthetic fleeces obviously that's not the message of this because Again, they'll just go into into a landfill or something, but just use them until they don't work anymore. Yeah, it's more of this disposable fashion is not good. Yeah, I mean it's great, <laughs> but it's not good. There are some international sanctions in place, um, but there hasn't been a new one since 1978. And wow, yeah, and they're so sort of vague and and toothless. Um, so I'm going to read them now. Uh, the 1972 Convention of the Prevention of Marine Pollution by Dumping Waste and Other Matter. Can you guess which country that came out of? No, but I thought this was going to be a boring part of the... England! Yeah. Because England is hyper-specific when it comes to stuff like this, which is Also important. on top of... Primarily, yeah. more on top of environmental yeah. Well, I mean, this was, this was like, new, this was 60 years ago, so, I mean, yes, on Just top of it. Just after the Great Smog of London. On top of it in the 70s, <laughs> but not anymore. Um, it only covers... The sanctions in place only cover deliberate disposal. So anything that accidentally falls into the ocean, no one can be, like, sanctioned for. Okay. Um, it, and it also doesn't cover land-based sources. It only applies oh. to ships. So okay. it's like you're, you're maybe sanctioning 20% of the waste that has to purposefully be dumped into the ocean. I mean, I kind of understand it because how can you say to somebody who it's, by accident drops a bottle off a ship? Right. Now you've got to spend. Yeah, it's 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 difficult too because because you also don't know the sources. Like you say, like if you come across a bit of 
dump in the ocean. How are you going to trace? Exactly. How are you going to trace that bottle yeah. back? It's to... more important that governments put sanctions on businesses in their countries from, yeah. from doing this sort of. This is like. When we talk numbers, 80% yeah. of, of... Can we just talk also about how glitter is the worst? Oh, glitter's awful for everything. Glitter is the it's worst. It's literally I just mean, little bits of... First of all, you can't get it out of anything. No, but also, let me be real clear. Glitter's also the best, um, but it is the worst. You can't... Oh, okay. Adam's dog has just found him. You can't You can't give them two sides of the, of the argument, Dora. I know, but I have glittery wallpaper that I'm about to start oh, putting Jesus. up on my house upstairs. <laughs> to be fair, I bought it overstock liquidation, secondhand. Secondhand wallpaper. Secondhand sort wallpaper. Of. Kind of secondhand wallpaper. Kept it out of a landfill. Kept it out of a landfill. Or a burn pile. Yeah. But glitter's the worst. As are face exfoliants or any exfoliants you use that don't use natural beads yeah. in them for exfoliating. It's just a little. It's just tiny, small beads of plastic yeah, that use, you just dump down the sink. We wash our faces with rubbish. Um, um, yeah, use walnut shavings. If yeah, I think stuff, St. Ives is all walnut. Yeah, or sand. You can just, just pick up some dirt and rub it if you want to exfoliate your pores. Sure, yeah. Okay, so Adam's going to have us all dressing and <laughs> acting like idiots. But be Not, no. <laughs> no, be conscious. <laughs> yes. Uh, be conscious about what you Be buy. aware of, of the things that you buy. Okay. Um, Wow, who knew this would turn into an environment? So preachy. Uh, it also sanctions the placement of materials for purposes other than mere disposal. I didn't really understand what that meant. Um, placement of materials for purpose. So it doesn't... I think that's basically just like a cover of if you can say it's an accident, we're not going to like sanction you for it, okay. basically. And then in 1978, London, again, was was putting it... This is a an addendum to the 1972 thing, and they called it... <clears throat> Ooh, the protocol like. to the International Convention for the Prevention of Pollution from Ships. Again, issue there. The ship's not great. No. Nope. Uh, and its goal was to minimize oil, air, like oil dumping, uh, air and water pollution, and to decrease dumping in general. But it hasn't really been super yeah. effective because London is very small and can't can't organize and. We're big. We're big, I promise you. Can't, small compared to the globe. Yes. And can't organize its own navy to go out and enforce no. these things. Um, no, but you've got, I mean, then surely there's got to be some. Is there not anything in, like, all the stuff that Trump got us out of that Biden's getting us back uh, into? The Paris Climate Agreement? I'm yeah. not sure how that, that I don't I don't know if that relates to ocean stuff. I think that might hmm. all be, like, an agreement within the borders. Of Get on the phone with Greta. Stuff. I will call the the sixteen year old. Get on the phone with Greta and have her tell you. And we can be preachy because, like I said, I'm drinking my coffee this morning out of a reusable plastic cup yeah. that That's... I've had for years. <laughs> and Ben Adams drinking his water out of a reusable water bottle. The issue is that um, what's great about I'm being really sarcastic. By the way, we're also wearing synthetic materials. Yeah. I'm about to put. It's so easy to say this stuff. We all know it's easy yeah. to say. There are small steps that you can take to to reducing yeah. uh, your your plastic footprint. Um, the, no, but the great thing about this is that should this break, I can just send it back to Nalgene and they'll recycle it's it for a, me. He's what he's showing you since it's a podcast and he can't hear oh, him as he steps. It's a plastic water bottle. I tap it on the microphone, but it's too early in the morning for that kind of shenanigans. <laughs> um, he's drinking from his plastic water bottle. And yes, uh, so we all kind of make mistakes, but I guess the plan is to try and make less mistakes. single use. I've had this for like eight years. I think I pulled this out of a dumpster. I'm sure you did. I, I saved it. I saved the planet with that water bottle. Um, so the last thing, this is this was interesting to me because I think that I think while we were growing up and we were in school, sure, certainly the like recycling circle. Oh, yeah, I don't I think that was that. a thing in the UK. No, I remember that. And it was reduce, reuse, reuse recycle. recycle. So now the the International Union for the Conservation of Nature provides us with what they call the zero waste hierarchy because really what we're trying to move away from is move away from recycling in the sense that we should be reusing more of our things and trying to recycle them because recycling in itself is inefficient inefficient and it creates environmental issues yeah. as well because you have to have factories to yeah. to to um yeah work over the plastic and the glass and stuff um, so on the top, it's an inverted pyramid. So I'm just going to go from the top down. Okay. Uh, from Inverted means big side on top, tiny point on bottom. <laughs> yes. Um, I know this because I just saw his diagram. It's very good. Very Actually, good. your notes look really neat today. I used a pen. Look. Oh, my gosh. Only, look how neat your only, notes are. Only one little smudge. 
my coffee stains are anything. I know. I'm using I'm using a fountain pen, so I have to be more conscious of. Because he's a student now. I'm a massive hipster. Well, that's not. Uh, so on the very top, we have reduce conserve material. Um, second below that, encourage. Some of these are like real descriptive, which is great. It's just funny because like then the bottom ones are just like one word. Things. Okay. Uh, the, the second one down is encourage cyclical use of resources and shift incentives to stop wasting. Design products for sustainability and take back. Yep. Reuse, recycle, regulate disposal. Okay. Um, so yeah, I didn't mean to get all preachy this early in the morning, but uh, I care about the oceans now. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't as of yesterday. No, I hated them. But now <laughs> I was just out. I was out in Plymouth just dumping oil into the ocean. <laughs> Up until yesterday, he was all mountains, mountains, mountains. And now it's the ocean. And now it's ocean. But I'm going to bring him right back to the mountain issues. Yes. Um, Mount, real... Mount, mountain communities are are historically. Ignored by governments, uh, they tend to be much more lower income. My God, he is preachy in the mornings, <laughs> isn't he? And we ignore them. We pretend like they don't exist. Um, so preachy. Okay. Uh, also, I just wanted to say that we had a message from someone named Gemma. Oh. Um, who said some really, 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 really nice things about our podcast. And guys, you have no idea how much it makes us happy when we get. Thanks, Gemma. Yeah, I have. Uh, nice I had. Messages. I had our friend record all of the nice messages they sent, and I play it on a loop as I'm falling asleep. Oh, that's so nice. I wish that that were true. <laughs> uh, so she said some really nice things, and uh, also asked about history through a house mm. and why she said she was really into that, but she hasn't heard any in a while. Oh yeah, it's been like eight months. So it was a really nice thing, tinged by a little guilt trip. Um, well, we're sort of busy. Building the house. <laughs> yeah. So actually, I think what I didn't realize is completely how much work History Through House would be. Really enjoyable work. Yeah. Um, but it's a lot it's a of lot, research. It's a lot more work for Dora as well because she's, Huge because she's the host. And since like Ben and I were only basically audience members... We can't really contribute much in terms of helping her do research. Yeah, so there is a huge amount of research, and I do actually really enjoy being able to read the newer things that have mm. come out. I mean, one of the things that came up in History Through a House a lot was big science and how that's changing what everybody's learning. So I really 100% will go back to it. For those that haven't heard it, go and listen to, I think there's probably about... 12 or 13 episodes. 12 or 13 episodes up. Um a lot different from this podcast. A lot different from this podcast. Go back and have a listen. Um, I will get back to it. I'm busy recording a wedding podcast right now. It's a little we, bit more timely for you. Yeah, we have to get it done for my business and my work and so that I can actually earn some money. Yeah. Um, and because or else there's no history to this house without some money to continue doing the house. Yeah. So we're in the business. I've done about 20 hours so far of the wedding podcast. Um. <sighs> Which that Austin will, he's edited and yeah, put together. which will come out. Well, it's going to come out. So what we're doing with it's going to be called Wedding Boot Camp. So anyone who's engaged, I'll mention it when it comes out. Yeah, but I was going to say this is like this is Bridal Boot Camp. Yeah, this is our Bridal Boot Camp. Only now, of course, we're a bit more Distant. inclusive. Oh, um, right. Yeah, of course. Because uh, when we first started this, uh, when we first started doing what was called Bridal Boot Camp, and for the last few years has been known as Wedding Boot Camp, is because. Uh, unfortunately, gay marriage was not legal, but now it is. So we're now more inclusive. It's called wedding boot camp. Um, and yeah, anyway, so we're doing that, but it's a lot, and it's all going to get released as one big batch of episodes. Like forty episodes will yeah. go out on one day. So it's a lot of work. But once we're done with that, history through a house is really, really high on my list of stuff I want to do for me. But you should pitch the other things if you have an old house kick you need to you need to scratch you've got so you've got ways to do that you have an instagram oh yeah i do have an instagram for those that don't follow longlands at dart oh longlands dartmoor like long piece of land with an s on it dartmoor that is actually mine ben and adam's life recording mm -hmm. instagram and you have the website as what we're doing in longlandsdartmoor.co.uk see adam's good at this mm. um and we are going to be on a tv show on hgtv which is very exciting oh, you announce that now yeah i can we are going to be on an hgtv discovery tv show they're doing an episode at least one episode on us called derelict rescue um which hasn't aired yet it'll air in 2020 mm. so there's lots of fun stuff going on yeah for those that are interested in there are places to see the adventure of the house yeah we're we're what we're doing in our lives mm. um outside of this podcast if you are interested there's lots of places to find out that stuff yep. um and 
but History Through Our House will be back. I actually have the next episode written, mm. but I'm going to try and get at least four or five episodes written before we record and start releasing. So, um, It'll all right. be back. It'll be back. It'll be back. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to... These ones are much easier. And God, was this week... Did I fail in doing... Adam had really good sources this week. Mm. And I... I got lucky. I decided to do... Well, put it this way. I went looking for better better sources than Wikipedia, which is usually where I think our journeys start. But as it is, I managed to uh, cross-reference my sources with the Wikipedia articles <laughs> and made sure that, in fact, it wasn't just... BS. Yeah, total BS. But... It, the Wikipedia article is so well written. Do you think we could get Wikipedia to sponsor the podcast? No, I don't think Wikipedia mm -hmm. as a charity, what we should be doing is saying, if you're enjoying the podcast, <laughs> please go donate to Wikipedia. Yeah, because they need it. They've been they've been asking for money forever. Yeah, no. Um, and, and we love, and like, obviously, like, we're not the only people who use Wikipedia. No. Almost every single podcast you listen to will use Wikipedia mm -hmm. as the basis donate for what they're doing. Donate some money. We're really preachy today. Donate, recycle your plastic. God, we're preachy. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so I will say that pretty much almost, not word for word, but almost word for word, I'm going to give you the oh Wikipedia God. article. We're going to get sued for, for plagiarism. I don't think Wikipedia can do that. We're going to start no, with not. a poem. Oh, oh nice. Because About a dam bursting? Yes. Oh, that's nice. Because, you know, poems. it's legendary tales and we do poems, we a do, lot of poems. You like poems. Um, so this is a poem by Isaac Reed. Mm. And we'll see if I can get through it first time. It's not very long. Many thousand human lives, butchered husbands, slaughtered wives, mangled daughters, bleeding sons, hosts of martyred little ones, worse than Herod's awful crime, sent to heaven before their time, lovers burnt and sweethearts drowned, darlings lost but never found, all the horrors that hell could wish for, such was the price that was paid for fish. I think that was just a hit piece on King Herod. Uh, it was a hit piece on fish, um, <laughs> known very specifically, which we will get into. But uh, this all started because a whole load of speculators and iron people and stuff got together and formed um, a fishing club at this dam. Oh, okay. Okay. Carry on. Spoiler alert. <laughs> that was it. That was the whole podcast. That was it. That was the whole okay. thing. That was enough. So we are... It's not even nine yet, Dora. I know. I know. We're uh, talking about a place in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um And... I pointed at a map that no one can see because <laughs> Pennsylvania's on that map. Okay, cool. <laughs> We're talking about a place in Pennsylvania. We're talking about a little town called Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I think this might actually be exactly what I was talking about when I got really angry about people ignoring the hinterlands. Um, Maybe. Because I took a... This is a, a quick aside. Yeah. I, I took a uh, a class when I was in university. When I was in, uh, I took a class when I was in like big air quotes proper university when universities were still open, okay. mm -hmm. um, and it was specifically about uh, iron working and coal mining towns uh, in Appalachian communities. And a lot of those places, like you said, the iron speculators come in, dam up a river, um, and then the entire city gets washed away. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that this is... I didn't read anything about Appalachian Mountains. No, the thing is that, like, Apple, Apple, Appalachia is a region. A region, not the mountains. Yeah, not necessarily. These are actually in the Allegheny Mountains. Allegheny? Yeah, okay, sure. That's oh. how that word looks. Um, I walked over those. Did you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Johnstown was founded in 1800 by a Swiss immigrant... Um, and it's on the Konemaug River, mm -hmm. and it, uh, it had a railroad that went through it, and the ironworks were nearby, so it attracted numerous Welsh and German immigrants with a population of 30,000. Um, it was in a growing industrial community known for the quality of its steel. Mm. Oh, right, yeah, uh, Pennsylvania, big, yeah. Big steel. Yep, yep, because every time, sorry again, I don't mean to keep interrupting, but... I always forget that the reason that Pittsburgh that the Pittsburgh Steelers, the football team, huh. are named for the steel companies that were huh. really prevalent in Pittsburgh. I didn't know that. Sorry, mm -hmm. guys. See, Sorry. you learned something. Sorry, everybody. Uh, so apparently this stretch of the valley is the deepest river gorge in, gorge in North America, east of the Rocky Mountains. Well, that's cool. 
Um, so, 14 miles upstream, mm-hmm. um, they built the South Fork Dam in 1838. Now, it was basically made of mud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was not like a concrete. Yeah, and steel thing. It's not the Hoover Dam. No, this is not the Hoover Dam. Uh, some so, idiots came with some spades and put some river in the mud to yeah, stop it from yeah, moving. Yeah, mud in the river. Yeah. Yeah. Dirt. You said river in the mud. That's what I meant. Okay, sweet. I don't um, speak. <laughs> so, uh, and obviously there was a river creating the reservoir behind the dam. Um, as railways superseded canal barge transport, the Commonwealth abandoned the canal that fed this reservoir and sold it to the Pennsylvania Road Railroad. The dam and lake were part of the purchase, and the railroad sold them to private investors. Okay. So it was never built necessarily for longevity, and it was built by the state, but then very quickly it fell into kind of private okay. hands. Okay. Um, Henry Clay Frick. What's a name? That's a great name. Uh, they had a group of people to purchase the abandoned reservoir, modified it, and converted it into a private resort lake for their wealthy associates. Oh, boy. So there was a, a whole long list of names of, like, barons and steel yeah. people that were listed mm-hmm. as being part of that uh, group of people. At the Rockefellers. Uh, they weren't involved in it. I do think we get some of the names that were involved in it as we go, but I think they're later on in my notes, so... I almost said Vanderbeek. Vanderbeek's? Instead of Vanderbilt, Bilt. because I was thinking of the actor. So, what did they do with it? They um, lowered the dam to make its top wide enough to hold a road, uh, put a fishing screen in the spillway, So, and this, that also trapped debris. It's kind of what you were talking about. If it's if it's wide enough to catch debris, it catches fish. Fish or vice versa. Yeah. And they all of this stuff was thought to have increased the vulnerability of the dam. Uh, moreover, a system of relief pipes and valves had no way of lowering the water level on the lake in case of emergency. They had not kept up with the like safe operating safe procedure. operating procedures as they started doing this, and so it became an exclusive mountain retreat. Membership grew to include more than fifty wealthy Pittsburgh steel, coal, and railroad industrialists. Um, so a little bit about this lake that they built. Because at this point, it was then the lake. It mm-hmm. wasn't really... It was held back by a dam. Mm-hmm. I think when everyone thinks dam, they think Hoover Dam. Yeah. Um, like, it's a reservoir. This was a dam built to create an artificial, at that point, reservoir, but turned into just a private lake. Okay. Residence. Okay. Um, it was about 450 feet in elevation above Johnstown. It was about two miles long, about one mile wide, and 60 feet deep. Okay. Pretty standard. So, pretty standard lake. The dam was 72 feet high and 931, that's 284, 931 feet, 284 meters long. Oh, okay. Um, it was constantly springing leaks, mm-hmm. and they just patched it back together with mud and straw. Um, okay. <laughs> so, I and, can't see and, that going wrong. and there've been lots of people. This was not something that people thought was fine. No, like there were a lot of people being like, mm, maybe no, guys, <laughs> maybe that's not guys. This that. is looking real bad up here. <laughs> um, May twenty eighth, eighteen eighty nine. A low pressure area formed over Nebraska and Kansas. By the time the weather pattern reached Western Pennsylvania, two days later, it developed in what would be termed the heaviest rainfall event that has ever been recorded in that part of the United States. The U.S. Army Signal Corps estimated that six to ten inches of rain fell in 24 hours over the region. And which I guess is a little, I feel like that much rain falls in Virginia all the time. Six to ten inches? Yeah. It's a lot of rain. Is it? It's a lot of rain. I mean, like. But I think it rains. More. I'm, I'm, I do think that it rains more. And I don't think it rains that much in that part of Pennsylvania. Anyway, it was the heaviest rainfall event. So whatever the, I think about it. Also the 1830s. Whatever I think about it. Yeah. Uh, no, 1889 now. 1889. Oh, well then pff, completely changes my opinion on that. Um, so uh, obviously we've got tons and tons of water rushing down into the reservoir, bringing loads of trees, debris, and all the kind of rest of it into that reservoir. So 
Ellis Unger, who mm. was the president of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, which is what this reservoir was, the club was now known mm. as, awoke uh, to the sight of a swollen night-long heavy rainfall in the river. He ran outside in the still pouring rain to assess the situation and saw that the water was nearly cresting the dam. He quickly assembled a group of men to save the face of the dam by trying to unclog the spillways, which, by the way, had been clogged for a very, very long time mm. and had broken and it was, you know. Um, it was blocked by the fish trap and the debris that had been pulled, pulled down. Uh, other men tried digging a ditch at the other end of the dam on the western uh, abundant, which was lower than the dam's crest. The idea was to try and let water out back end the back end mm -hmm. more slowly yeah and they just basically uh the john park who was the engineer that was actually in charge of the dam uh engineer yeah tried cutting uh, thought about cutting through the dam um uh, but realized that very quickly that much water rushing through i'm assuming what is not a stable surface would then of course erode it quickly causing the dam to break anyway um twice under the orders of Unger, Parker Park rode on horseback to the nearby town of Little Fork to the telegram office to send warnings to Johnstown, explaining the critical nature of the eroding dam. Unfortunately, uh, Park himself did not take the message to the telephone tower. He sent someone there to do it, and the warnings were not passed on to the authorities in town. So I'm going to give, and also there have been apparently a lot of false alarms about the dam not holding Mm. in the past so i'm gonna give them their credit which is they really were trying yeah like mm -hmm. they saw this was coming a mile off not sort 14 of. miles off unfortunately <laughs> 14 miles off um but too they late, yeah um they continue working until 1 30 in the afternoon and fearing that the dam was just going to collapse uh they ordered all the men to fall back to higher ground on both sides of the dam where they could do nothing but watch and wait. They did think that the message had mm -hmm. got downhill. Like, yeah. They were under the impression that Johnstown were evacuating. Um, they were not. Um, waters in Johnstown rose uh, to higher as 10 feet, but that was, they. it was from the rainfall itself. Uh, we'll get into the fact that Johnstown had major flooding problems yeah. and still does well, they were to this on, day. Yeah, they were on like a floodplain. Yeah. Like. Um, so somewhere between 250 and 255, the South Fork Dam breached. Um, it contained 14.55 million cubic meters of water at mm. the moment the dam collapsed. Um, it would have taken about 65 minutes for most of the lake to empty. Um, the first town to be hit by the flood was South Fork, um, and the town. But that town was on high ground, and most of the people escaped by running to nearby hills when they saw the dam spilling over. Twenty or thirty houses were destroy destroyed. Um, four people were killed. However, fourteen miles downstream, this water was coming in, and I've got some. Uh, I've got some statistics as we get there. It, like at one point, they reckon it was running at 40 miles an hour and 60 feet high. Just to give you, an, wow. like, I mean, 60 feet high, that's like a solid five or six story building. Mm. Moving as fast as a car. Moving as fast as a car. Yeah. Um, picking up all this debris as it went. So that's the thing is it's not it's just, like just water. water. Yeah. It's, they've got Trees, houses. Houses, yeah. Animals, people. Yeah. Mm. It was all coming down this thing. So um, it reached the Conemar Viaduct, which was an 80-foot uh, high railroad bridge. And the flood was momentarily stemmed when the debris jammed up against the bridge of Stone Arch. So it all kind of it created its own kind of okay. dam mm -hmm. briefly against this big stone bridge. But it only took seven minutes for this stone viaduct to collapse allowing the water to resume. Um, but because it had been held up there, it actually built up much stronger, like, because it had been held, all the water mm. coming in behind it, it then started moving much faster and yeah, much more destructively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't even trickling down once this, I think, you think of a dam breaking, mm -hmm. there's a big difference between a stream that grows bigger in a breach. Yeah 
versus everything being held up behind a stone bridge yeah. that immediately collapses and the whole thing goes. goes. The next town that got hit was Mineral Point, which was one mile down. Mm. Um, it was the first populated, really populated place to be hit because um, Little Fork had at least managed to mostly evacuate. About 30 families lived on the village's single street. After the flood, there was no structures, no topsoil, no subsoil, only bedrock. The death top heel, toll here was approximately 16 people. Um, and the flow rate was approximately 420,000 cubic feet per second. By the way, guys, obviously they don't, they weren't being able to measure these things in 1889, but this has been a very thoroughly studied mm. dam breaking and computer modeling is where I'm getting these numbers from, not from, uh, not from, like, there weren't yeah. people measuring this stuff. East Conemaugh, I don't know how to, C-O-N-E-M-A-U-G-H. Conemaugh? Sorry, M-A-U-G-H? M-A-U-G-H. Cone, it's probably not even pronounced that No, way. it's Appalachia, and I will tell you that we know from experience, having lived there, people change their names. It does, Stuff is not pronounced how it's written. Nope. Um, so I'm sorry. Uh, one... Witness on high ground described the water as almost obscured by debris, resembling a huge hill rolling over and over. I went trying to find, there is an amazing historical website. There's, a, there's actually a museum mm. all dedicated to this, and they have got first-hand accounts and everything like that on there. Mm -hmm. I went looking for more first-hand accounts. Unfortunately, the website was down. Oh. Uh, so I managed to see some of it, Managed to cross-check some of the sources mm -hmm. and certainly the validity of the website. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, just for whatever reason, as I'm doing this research, of course, I can't get my hands on the first-hand <laughs> accounts. Um, so uh, here's John Hess, who was a train engineer, heard and felt the rumbling of the approaching flood. He threw his locomotive into reverse and he raced back towards the town, whistleblowing constantly. His warning saved many people and encouraged him to reach higher ground. Um, just as a little hero in this. Unfortunately, this town lost at least 50 people, um, including about 25 people who were stranded on the trains in town. Um, so, one more place before it hit Donstown. Just the Cambria Ironworks. Um... And it swept up railroads, cars, barbed wire, um, and it was in a town of Woodvale. 314 people died in Woodvale. Mm. Um, boilers exploded, causing black smoke to be seen by the Johnstown residents. And then millions of its barbed wire fencing became entangled in the debris. Mm. And anyone who has horses or has ever spent two minutes with me will know that barbed wire, you want to talk about things that should absolutely just be banned. Barbed wire. Is yeah. barbed wire. Barbed wire, absolutely. There is no need, no reason for barbed wire. Um, and it is so dangerous to so many animals and people and everything. So 57 minutes after the dam collapsed, it hit Johnstown. Um, the residents were caught by surprise. Um, uh, I mean, people were hit by debris, Caught up in barbed wire. Um, they reached what's called the stone bridge in Johnstown, which I've seen pictures of it. Um, it's It was a fairly substantial bridge. Mm -hmm. This is not a small bridge. Um, and it carried the Pennsylvania Railroad across the river. So yeah. definitely not as a small bridge. Um, again, it created a temporary dam at the bridge, um, resulting in a... Uh, Resulting in the river flooding back upstream a bit. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, eventually, gravity caused the surge to return to the dam, causing a second wave to hit the city, um, but from a different direction. So some people who had run one way mm -hmm. then got hit as the wave went back upstream and hit them from a different direction. Um, this was, I saw the most horrific painting of this next bit I'm going to tell you about. Um, some people who had been washed downstream became trapped in an inferno as the debris piled up against the stone bridge caught fire. Wow. At least 80 people died there. The fire at stone bridge burned for three days. And after the floodwaters receded, the piles of debris at the bridge were seen to cover 30 acres and reach 70 feet high in places. So 
and it just kept burning. Mm-hmm. Um, you never think of fire and floods, like. Uh, yeah, because the Ohio River caught on fire once. Did it really? Yeah, because it was so polluted. Um, this is obviously not the same thing. But, yeah. Um, that's a a a, a horrifying uh, combination of. Oh, just it was a very, very emotive picture page. Yeah. It will probably I I, be what I think will I be. I have seen that picture. It will probably be the picture that is on our yeah, one of our cover art things. Um, they couldn't clear the once. So now we're going. Now we're going back to the rivers. This is this is where the river kind of. This is where the flood basically mm-hmm. it drained out. Yeah. Was in Johnstonstown. Um, they couldn't remove a lot of the, di- uh, the debris, so dynamite had to eventually be used. Um, and they rebuilt the bridge using a lot of the debris that was there, and it's now mm-hmm. like a symbol to the. Um, and uh, in two thousand and eight, it was restored again in a project including new lighting as part of a commemorative activities um, for the flood. So the original death toll was calculated as two hundred and uh, two thousand two hundred nine people. Um, yes, it was recalculated in nineteen hundred when Leroy Temple showed up. Uh, to reveal he'd not died in the flood, but had, as the flood was coming through, he took it as an opportunity to run away. And then he had lived in Beverly, Massachusetts. So actually the official death toll is 200, uh, 2,208 now. Um, bodies were far, found as far away as Cincinnati and as late as 1911. Wow. 99 entire. Cincinnati? Uh-huh. That's that's the opposite side of Ohio. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, 99 entire families died in the flood, including 396 children. 124 women and 198 men were widowed. 98 children were orphaned, and one-third of the dead, 777 people, were never identified. Their remains are buried in the plot of the unknown at the Grandview Cemetery in Westmont. It is the worst flood to have hit the U.S. in the 19th century. 1,600 homes were destroyed. $17 million in property damage was... um, And that was, by the way, it's now actually they helpfully converted that to kind of modern-day money. Mm -hmm. It's about half a million. Wow. No, 500 million, half a billion dollars worth of damage. Uh, Four square miles of Johnston were completely destroyed. Um... It took 18 months before the steel and iron facilities were destroyed. Uh, no, up to production. Oh, right. Oh, right, right, right. Um, so, yeah. All right. Um, one of the first outsiders to arrive was a woman named Claire, Clara Barton, who was a nurse and founder and president of the Red Cross. Hmm. And oh, yeah, I know her name. I didn't really get into her too much because I hadn't really heard of her. Mm-hmm, I know. But for badass women, I think she might be one of my next... Yeah, for sure. ...next people. Um, just, But this was her first disaster relief, I guess. Yeah. This was the first time the Red Cross were used in disaster relief, which, just as an aside fact, not really what we're talking about. <laughs> um, donations for the relief effort came from all over the United States and the United... Uh, and overseas. Um they collected around um, four million, which, as you can imagine, considering the damage was—I'm talking their time money—seventeen million was wonderful that that many people had donated. Yeah. But it didn't really do much. Do much. It didn't go very far. No. And in the years following the disaster, obviously the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club um, came under a lot of fire mm-hmm. for failing to maintain it properly. Um, the club, uh, they didn't really even, there's no real argument for any of this, um, right. except for the fact that they had bought something that was built poorly to begin with. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. They, yeah. Um, and then I they mean, didn't modify poor, it for fit purpose. It's a poor excuse, but. Um, but like you said, dams generally are. Not good. Not good. <laughs> um they were sued by a lot of the survivors. Yeah. Um, but they were defended successfully and defended. Defended. Um, and they argued that the dam's failure was a natural disaster, mm. which is an act of God, and no legal compensation was paid to the survivors of the flood. Um yeah. however, um Andrew Carnegie oh, yeah. was a member of the club. 
Um, and he donated a lot of money along with other members of the club. Mm. They were all very... Now, what I was trying to figure out was whether that $3.7 million that they talked about being donated, that in, did that include? Oh, yeah. The industrialized? Not clear. Cause, or does it not? It's not clear. Did they donate on top of that? Uh, hopefully. Or, I hope so, because if... The, the, I'm sure they could donate for between the long list of very big people, yeah. including Andrew Carnegie. They might have been able to pay for all of the damage. Um, yeah, so five days after the breach of the flood breach, American Society of Civil Engineers appointed a committee of four prominent engineers to investigate the cause of the disaster. Um, the committee was led by the esteemed Francis B. James B. Francis. Um, not like Francis James B. B. No, no B. His, James. His James B. Francis, <laughs> who was um, a hydraulic engineer and, and did a whole load of different stuff. I mean, they list out his qualifications here, and it's like... So he okay. should know what he was doing. Uh, in the final report that they concluded, South Fork Dam would have failed even if it had been maintained with the original design specifications. Wow. Um, which is kind of... Insane. What I was saying, like even with a higher embankment crest and with the five large discharge plant, they it was designed wrong from the get go. From the very beginning, as many of these dams have proved to be, it's <laughs> yeah. yes they're poorly maintained. Yes, one person looking after that much square footage of dam mm -hmm. cannot be expected to notice every leak, crack, not just there but all over. Right, and and and. Yeah, and and not only that. Whenever I do these, the fact that we live slightly uphill from west from the oh big reservoirs yeah. always freaks me out. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> just just so you know, about a mile away from us is three huge reservoirs yes. that feed most of our local area. With, At least they're concrete. Yeah. Um, not mud and straw. Yeah. Uh, so. It, it uh, the the investigation was sealed and actually not like not published for a long time, um, until 19, 1891. Uh, I think it was to do with at that point it was President Becker. I don't remember President Becker, but it was also what did you say? Wait, you it was like eight. I don't think President Becker was a president. Maybe he's the president of this committee. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking as well. Because I was like, I don't think I know a president, I don't Becky. Think there is a president, Be okay. Becky. <laughs> Becky, the president. Um, all right. So, anyway, uh, they didn't publish this finding. Not that it made any difference, because the finding also said that the fishing hunt club weren't liable, particularly liable. Yeah. Um, they said it wasn't maintained, but that even if it had been maintained, it couldn't have been their fault. It couldn't have been their fault. Um, but a more thorough modern report was done in 2016 mm. so they're still investigating it now uh, which confirmed what had long been suspected that the change was made to the dam by the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club severely reduced the ability of the dam to maintain with well, like putting a road on it yeah and lowering it by a meter and failing to replace the discharge pipes at the base of the dam when they broke um Okay, so this actually had a huge effect on American law because they were unable to recover any damages and things like that. Uh, in 1890, state courts around the country adopted Rylands versus Fletcher, a British common law precedent which had formerly been largely ignored in the U.S. Uh, state courts adopted adoption of Rylands, which held that a non-negligent defendant could be held liable for damage caused by the unnatural use of land. Mm foreshadowed the legal system's 20th century acceptance of strict liability. Interesting. So basically, if you mess now, if yeah. you mess up a piece of land, mm -hmm. if you use it for something that is not considered natural, mm -hmm. and that not natural thing fails. fails or causes issues, you are liable whether you followed the letter of the law yeah. or not. Um, so I guess that's good. Yeah. Um, and... Um, Floods have continued to be a big concern for Johnstown, which had major flooding in 1894, 1907, 1942, 1936, and 1977. Um, they put in, uh, following the 1936, they dredged the river and built some big concrete river walls. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it looked like it was working and it actually survived Hurricane Agnes in 1972. But in 1997, in 1977, a severe thunderstorm dropped 11 inches of rain in eight hours wow. on the watershed above the city. Um, and it was declared a national disaster. 40 were killed. Um, oh, no, uh, 78 people eventually were... 40 were killed initially, 78 long-term. Um, and... 50,000 people rendered homeless. That's insane. So don't go to Johnstown. Or go to Johnstown. It's got a university. Um, but don't don't expect to not get flooded out. So anyway, that was the Johnstown flood. Yeah, I remember that. I do remember that now. Um, not personally. Not He's only 24. Seven? <laughs> I do vaguely remember learning about that. The, the, thing about, the interesting thing about that uh, is that well, the good thing about it is that the, that the government was involved in some way. Mm -hmm. There were some other instances of other sort of mining towns flooding and there being like no well, government I, assistance. I mean, the fact that there were the all these major industrialists yeah. were kind of, I mean, whether they were legally found at fault or not, yeah. you've got to assume that 50 members of a, that at least some of them had a conscience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems to be that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I... I find this really interestingly horrible. And yeah. it's every time I learn about one of these dams breakings, it it's is scary. It is scary. It's scary and it's very sad. All right, guys. So that is our episode. Yay. Thanks for listening. And now it's just before nine o'clock and we get to go and do a work day. Thank you so much for listening. I will get this edited and up. And we have no idea what we're doing next week because we are going with the flow right now. Yeah. Oh, my husband wants to step in. Actually, we oh, do yeah, know what we're to, doing next week. We're going to talk about booze. Because we're going to do an episode on booze. Ben wants to do the Great Beer Flood. So we're doing a three-story three, episode. A three and uh, we're going to do it on booze. Which, if you haven't listened to the History Through a House podcast, will be very similar to that. Yep. All right. See you later. Rate, review, subscribe, all Bye. the other things. Bye. Yeah.